trigger warning uh, for anyone who's been the victim of domestic abuse, be forewarned. Brie gets pretty upset in this podcast uh, at me just because I don't know what vampires are. Hello and welcome to Genre Stop, the podcast where we read and review genre fiction. You're here with Bree, a lover of all things fantastical. Hello. And Scott, a skeptic of all things a speculative. Yeah. What? <laughs> you know, we're kind of flagging an energy this week for some reason, but I, I have a good feeling about this. What do you think? Uh, yeah, I would say flagging, though I have a lot of emotions about this book, and I'm kind of hoping our conversation will be emotional. Nice, okay. Yeah. Maybe get you to start crying? Or, yeah, I was actually just, I wanted you to be really scared. <laughs> I will be. <laughs> Thematically, that fits with our book, Aguiar, by Stevie Brust. <laughs> Stephen Brust. Yeah. Brust. I think Brust is probably it. Um, Stephen Brust. Um, okay, why don't you give us an introduction and synopsis of our book here, and then we'll get going. All right, so Agyar is a 1993 fantasy novel by Stephen Brustbrust. The story follows John Agyar, nay, Janos Agyar, who... Uh, N-A-Y or N-E-E? N-E-E. Mm, oh, nay. Or, or N-E-I-G-H. This is already the worst podcast we've done. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> He arrives in an Ohio college town after being mysteriously compelled there by his vampire sire, Laura Kellum. Get ready, Scott. The words are going to keep coming. Aguiar takes up residence in an abandoned house occupied by the ghost of a former freed slave, Jim, and a really handy typewriter. Through his first-person diary entries, the reader is drawn into his confidence as we tag along during his time in Ohio. These months are largely spent with two lovely coets, a young painter who he physically and sexually brutalizes over months of hypnotic control, hot, and her roommate Susan, who he falls in love with, though um, that's pretty much a distinction without a difference. Meanwhile, nice. he yeah, he unravels the sinister plot of his sire Kellen and struggles to beat her at her own game, framing the other one with the body count naturally wrapped up by two temperamental vampires, and thus leading to, uh, I don't know, death, exposure, prison. Uh, it's kind of vague, the, the fallout consequence, but it seems pretty serious. Throughout all this, Agyar ruminates over existential themes of choice, meaning, dread, awareness of oblivion, emotional subjectivity, how shitty the weather is in Ohio. Oh, and Bruce never uses the word vampire. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. So, Scott, uh, I'm actually so excited to hear what you think. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, so let's just start with Agyar himself. Uh, I think the story kind of lives or dies on his appeal as a narrator. It can't die. Well, it can die. They're not, okay, we have to get into mythology already. Okay. They can die. They're not invulnerable, and I think that was the strength of the book. But um, What you mean is how it lives or undies. I don't want to make vampire puns in this. Okay. Can we just not do it? I feel like, I, I feel like you have some written down. I don't have any vampire puns. Okay, so here's what I'm saying. What do you think of the voice? What do you think of Agyar? Did you think he was a sympathetic narrator? And would you want to get? Actually, I can't make fun of you about the puns because I was gonna say, would you want to get half a cup of coffee with him? I mean, I I get that liking a character, thinking that they're sympathetic, is kind of arbitrary, but I actually thought he was like very persuasive. And I think since compulsion and like suasion. Mm. literally is a big part of the whole vampire lore, the fact that he was like a a genuinely charming Okay, well then I then I then I push back against that. I first of all, I rarely like or dislike narrators. It's not that I don't have subjective feelings about narrators, it's just that it never t- boils down to whether, you know, I like this person or not. Why my feelings don't come out that way. They come out as am I frustrated by this person or not frustrated? And I was frustrated by this, the narrator. Okay, so you say genuine charm. The way he was written to me is wasn't genuinely charming. Well, that is subjective because what do you consider charming? I think someone who's really scary but also darkly funny is charming. 
And I think he was both those things. Uh, I guess I don't. Or maybe I am going to, like, the Lothario aspects more than you. I mean, there were four times where I wrote down, like, Stephen Brust wish fulfillment in his interactions with women. He was so smooth. No, I disagree with you there. Look, I love making fun of Patrick Rothfuss as much as anyone else (laughs) when he thinks he's his main character. But I really didn't think that's what was happening here. For one, because this is very much a traditional vampire story, and that means while it plays on the kind of like tragic hero vampire that comes up around the 90s with Anne Rice and them, Mm -hmm. uh, it is not at all super sexy good guy who just can't help that he has this one like bad impulse vampire that exists now, kind of. He's in the Dracula, like a Victorian fixation on like sex and eroticism and maybe love, but actually he's the embodiment of evil. So you're saying it fits into a type... I'm saying he's a very traditional vampire and I really like that about him and because of that... I never found, like, he is a sexy person. I think that part of being this species vampire is having, like, a hypnotic magnetism in which virginal young women simply come under your sway and then you really rape and brutalize them. Well, this gets down... I mean, I'm interested in the vampire lore knowledge you're about to drop here when I I get into that. Before that, though, no, I I wasn't thinking along those lines yet. Yeah, I don't know necessarily how to contextualize this in the realm of, like, Vampiria. You might be reading something into the book that's not there because I don't think it gives us this kind of hypnotic kind of persuasion over women. It's very literal. The book wants us a couple times to think that he wins them over through his, like, witticisms and charm. Maybe there's a little bit about a mind control that grows up with A little bit? What happens with Jill? I mean, Jesus Christ, she cries when he walks in the door. Right, I'm saying at the beginning of his relationships, he's presented as, like, just this really cool dude. The very beginning of the book starts with him winning Jill over from a sociology major by out-sociologizing the guy and talking about Weber and Who doesn't love, like, an academic party? Right, but But I'm saying the way the book's presented is there is no, like, supernatural winning there, right? I disagree, because I actually think that's about... The fact that he, to some extent, he's a mimic and he simply has been alive long enough to like know conversationally what happens. So I feel like every time he's winning someone over, even in his interactions with Susan, you can see that like this girl is getting one thing from this guy, which is that like he's bantery and he'll like put something back and he's kind of ironic and that's all it really takes with a girl. I mean, I don't think his heart is really in that. And I think the funny thing is that the whole time there are all these double entendres and verbal ironies because he's actually talking about how he wants to kill them. Okay, this is good. So we can differentiate between like imbibing a lot of human interactions and knowing what to work with people and a type of mind control. So if you're saying the former, then that's still Stephen Brust having to like write witticism and someone winning over someone quickly using non-supernatural means. I agree. I'm just I, saying he wasn't a dreamy guy who I thought Stephen Bruss wants to be this guy. I, well, I did. Maybe this is just how we read it differently. I read it and put myself in the mind of the man and think, you're not as cool as you think you are. And you read it and put yourself in the mind of a vampire fiction fan and think, oh, this is what it's doing. Correct. Speaking of, I was wondering, where do you situate this story in your, or this vampire in your vampire pantheon? I mean, in relation to the other vampires you love? (laughs) I'm the one who just said I don't do that because I have nothing to base it on. So you must have had a hard time because this book does rely very obviously on your knowledge of vampires. I wanted to get back to your first point. The kind of exchange with women, too cool for school, back and forth, rat-a-tat-tat witticism that just is a little too much for me and makes me think, calm down. He's talking to Jill and then Susan, so we get a little bit of both. And he's going to be, he's just going to win him over. Jill said to him, don't embarrass me in front of Susan. He said, why were you embarrassed? Just don't, all right? I smiled into her eyes. Give us a kiss. She sighed and came into my arms. I caressed her back for a moment and held her cheek against mine. Her skin was warm and soft. I kissed my way past her ear. Jack, she said in a whisper. Hmm. I don't. I do, however, and that's what matters. She came around to my way of thinking in pretty short order. When I went back down the stairs, Susan was still up, stretched out like a cat on the sofa, her ankles crossed. Something I didn't recognize was on the stereo. She was listening intently. That was quick, she said. Jill was mad at me, I said. It seems I embarrassed her. Jill, said Susan, embarrasses easily. You don't, though. 
That's correct. Then I won't try and embarrass you. Grab a coat. Where are we going? Coffee. I'd like that, she said. Wait, I actually... No, that was a terrible passage to pick for what you were saying. It really was. Actually, that makes me think you actually literally didn't understand what he was doing (laughs) in the scenes with Jill. Because only because, all right, for for one, he's an unreliable narrator, obviously, and we're getting his side of things, and I think subjectivity is a big a big driving force of the narrative. That whole thing with Jill is great because it does look, I mean, actually, there's such a built-in critique of the way that vampire books are written that that whole thing, when you read it like that, does seem like he's seducing her. She says, I don't, I do. But once you actually realize what he's doing in those scenes and it takes a couple interactions, you're realizing he's, these girls aren't cheerfully under his sway. It's not like, oh, I don't, I do. Until the end, when things get sick with Susan, it's because he feels different and there's even a reason for that so we can get into. But with Jill, he's like, that scene, when read in not that voice, is a man coming in and really raping someone. That's what she's doing. She's saying no. When she says, don't embarrass me in front of Susan, it's because the weird thing in the compulsion is that she can't address it directly. And so there are all these... I mean, I actually think the stuff with Jill is really scary. But it's so deeply funny that the whole time he does present it as a lover's narrative when you know what's actually going on is horrifying. This is the first book where I feel a couple times I was just out of my depth. The book you read in Vampirology 301, not 101, because it was it's there are a lot of times where I felt like this is playing off expectations that he expects readers to have, but I don't. For example, at first I thought why does he have so many elisions over the sex scenes? And then I thought, wait, it's not sex. It's just like, I guess, vampire stuff going on that I don't understand. Wait a minute. I really feel like if that was your reaction to those scenes, that's not even a negative reaction or an apathetic reaction to what's going on. That's not picking up what's going on. Or like, I thought stylistically that was so clever because in vampire books, like, they love even the ones that do have graphic scary vampires or the ones that have sexy vampires or the ones that have sci-fi vampires love to show you what what the vampires are doing to these people and there's gore and there's talking about he's getting in her veins and pulling it out from her not ephemeral artery what's that one by her vagina called the ephemeral artery that one's always so fleeting <laughs> that's funny <laughs> no but i'm saying and the fact that none of that actually happens in this book makes it so much more chilling because it is it looks like a lover scene in which and then i took her into my arms dot 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 the next time he mentions her, she's really sick and she can barely get up and she's really scared. There was one point during this when I think you were trying to make notes on your phone and you accidentally like sent a text message to me and it was just like page 73, like actual terrifying scene. I was like, okay, this is before I started reading it. And then I got to that point and I'm like, I didn't see anything scary here. It's when he pushes her down on the couch and the whole story really plays, I feel like, with your expectations of not only vampire shit, obviously, but also a romantic narrative and sort of this odd serial killer psychopath narrative we all have in our heads from watching however many hours of SVU or whatever, where the sweet new boyfriend of the college girl who's a little older but he seems cool is actually psychologically and sexually abusing her and ends up killing her. Uh, Yeah, I totally agree then. I think then we just read it completely different. So this kind of subtlety glossing over you know the money shot in a way read differently to me and you so I, I was kind of reading this as like a slow description of a realistic menage a trois or like this this guy moving between these two girls I understood there was vampiric shit going on but like wait it was so scary how about how sick Jill got never felt never felt scared or never she even... was hospitalized she was Susan thought something was wrong with her I mean, I mean yeah I never I, I guess I thought in my head like oh I guess he's sucking her blood sometimes but it never did I never cared I mean I thought the book was so suggestive in all those scenes and really and I I love vampire shit and I never get scared and I thought this book was scary I never thought anything about this was scary books in general would be less scary if told through first person from the point of view of what's supposed to be scary. That's why it's so funny. I mean, I really thought the success of this book, for one, it's really short. It's like 200 pages. And I felt like it was just a quick, scary, funny in the way that is gross. And you're laughing at it and you're like, yeah, he's killing her. Like quick, scary, funny book. I found it neither scary nor funny. I disagree. The stuff I thought was funny wasn't exactly him seducing the women. I'm not talking about his charm. I'm saying like 
For instance, well, the I know, whole Well, because you're saying the funniness comes from a subversion of genre expectations. So I couldn't get or that playing funniness. On those, but not even just the genre expectations. I thought a really representative sort of section in this book in terms of writing and tone and narration and the themes of the book uh, is when a homeless guy asks him for money at one point mm-hmm. and he says no and then the homeless guy says like just $10 and he's kind of like $10 that's so much and then he has this little section where he thinks about charity and how like he doesn't give to charities but he helps his friends when they need it and that makes him a good person right I mean you know it's not his fault if the world is the way it is he has a conscience but he has no shame and that is such a a human aside of like a regular person when he's actually like a fucking crazy serial killer I mean, that's true, and that even that came through for me a couple times, where I could tell that there was a kind of, like, wryness that I thought was funny, that, like, I knew he was, like, a vampire killer, and there was a couple times he thought about, like, love and being nice to people, and, like, how... I mean, we can get into the politics later, because there was some kind of interesting politics. Oh, I want to um, know what you think about the racial stuff. Right. So, he was surveying the world with, like, a very humanist conscience mm-hmm, while, while doing mm-hmm. these things, and I understood... That's a good way to put What was supposed it. to happen there. Maybe what I was more hung up on. And, okay, so I guess there were a couple barriers, which I understood, but then just were kind of insurmountable for me. One is just the fact that I knew there was a modicum of vampire lore that I needed to assess this, that I just didn't have. By being so Okay, but you veiled. not having that vampire lore is really fucking weird. And I don't even mean reading vampire books. I mean just knowing what a vampire is. All you really needed to know was about vampire compulsion. That first one's already deep vampire. If you ask most people that understand vampires stuff, they'd say wooden stakes, garlic, they can't go out in the sunlight. Uh, listeners, you'll have to weigh on, in on if you knew about compulsion. I think everyone knows about compulsion. <laughs> compulsion, third tier. Second tier is the thing about not being able to go in a house. I, I got that eventually. He needs to be invited in a house. Oh, that's basic stuff. That's right next no, to that's garlic. No, that's second tier. That's second no, that's tier. Not, garlic. that's not second tier. Bra- Bram Stoker shit, that's not... You need to be invited. No, in. that's also Buffy. That's what like, exactly that's true. Uh, what's that? True Blood. Uh, <laughs> well, I actually forgot because I <laughs> let's, gave up on it. Let's 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 just have on the record, Bree pretending not to know what True Blood <laughs> no, was. No fuck, True True Blood <laughs> was great for a while, and the Cookie Stackhouse novels are really fun. Okay, Cookie Stackhouse. Listen, okay, back to our main thing. So this the jokes that he seemed to be trying to make were something like this. He's talking about his sire, a word I just learned. You're really cool for not knowing this vampire stuff. <laughs> I'm just saying, You're this so is what cool. we come to it with. He said, to my eyes, Kellum, his sire, blended into the scene the way Bette Midler would have blended into a monastery. First, good Bette Midler joke. <laughs> <laughs> Second, okay, so here's the thing I'm saying that for some reason, my reading just couldn't get over these humps that obviously I should with other things. This was so 1993 to me. I agree, but I actually really liked that it was so 1993 because I feel like when you read a vampire book written now, it's hard to get the sense that vampires are ageless beings lodged into some specific time period and that their their view of time is larger than that. But because this whole book read 1993, I felt like, look, here is this vampire in 1993, and if I wrote a book about him set in 2010, it would be different. I didn't feel that I got the kind of agelessness of vampires that I could have here. What I actually got was the sense of, like, 1990... He actually seemed more 1993 listening to Toad the Wet Sprocket than, like, actual vampire. I like the Kate Nash stuff. <laughs> I mean, so, like, the Bette Midler joke. I just... It just made me laugh. When I coupled my feelings about how s- smooth this guy thought he was with... I know you want to push you back on that. You misread his smoothness. I'm Whatever. sorry. He is smooth. When I coupled that with the way he talked about the clothes he was wearing, it was just funny to me. I couldn't be... Oh! Because he seemed... Okay, I just pictured my head... The bobby coat? Listen, I just pictured my head wearing this, like, oversized leather jacket, a silk shirt... It's not leather, it's a bobby jacket. We have an actual description of what he wore. No, read the description, because when I tell you... Like, the description actually helps my case. This is what the coolest guy on campus is about to put on. He's not the coolest guy on campus. (laughs) That's not how how it's presented. But I'm saying, by sublimating sublimating the vampire stuff so much, non-vampire experts have no way to contextualize this guy, but to make him a suave ladies' man. Okay, I will say that I think that 
some of your anxieties about masculinity and <laughs> the currency of coolness and stuff like that that you just carry with you in your life are going into your reading of this I, character. Hey, I'm not denying that. <laughs> this is true. He's competing for Jill's affections, and so am I. <laughs> I, would come at, I would come at her in that party a lot different. And his points about Weber were pedestrian at most. <laughs> okay. I stand in front of the fireplace, dry myself off as if there were a fire going, then go over to the dressing room attached and put on what I've chosen to wear for the day. Today, for the record, I'm wearing black zip boots. <laughs> okay, imagine this. Black zip boots. Wait, I'm sorry. Are, All right, listen, are you laughing right now because, like, in the 90s, shit was cool and now you think it's not? No, I mean, partially. Like, if, if you described what you wear every day, you know someone would be like, oh, in, oh in you're the in magic land of 20. Yeah. Listen, aliens from 2050. Oh, what I'm wearing I'm Scott. is so Here's cool. my kind of, like, plain shirt. It's full of stripes and, like, it's kind of cool. And here are my, like, kind of, like, tight, good-looking pants oh. and my really plain sneakers. Oh, Brie likes my shirts. All right. Today, for the record, I'm wearing my black zip boots, black pants. He's so got... when you read, like, 19th century novels, are you just like, please, you think that coat's cool? <laughs> what, that collar? Right, listen, listen. A navy blue turtleneck. He's got some stormtrooper black pants, <laughs> black, black boots, black jeans, I'm sure. He's tucked into those black jeans, his navy blue turtleneck. And he's wearing a brown brown corduroy sports coat. All right, watch out, campus. Okay, look, I'm fucking sorry this was written in 1993. <laughs> I'm and not yesterday. I, you want him to be fucking cutting edge. I couldn't get over it in my head. I just kept laughing. So all I'm saying is that, of course, it's 1993. But to me, it couldn't be funny or it couldn't be scary because it was funny. Okay, well, I really liked the focus on clothes because I thought it drew out something that the book was doing successfully, which is he was really vain and petty. And a lot of his concerns had absolutely nothing to do with his vampirism. And I think that made it him a more interesting narrator and the story less bogged down with fucking I'm a vampire, look, I'd so amazing. It was, he was actually like, oh, he was really jealous about Susan hooking up with that girl and he was really vain and he hated that now he had to wear like an ugly coat instead of his pretty one. I, I hated all that jealousy shit. I mean, it just did nothing for me. It maybe said, it said nothing to me about I mean, his vampirism. No, because I actually think like, okay... I mean, I guess for you, you've never read vampire stuff, but if you're into reading vampires as metaphors, I'm not... Okay, I'm sorry, but not to be silly, but like... I read this, vampires as analogy. That's all. That's the only way to read vampires. So it, it like uses Lycra as? It, it sucks the blood from Lycra as. Oh. The point is, if vampires are a human who is completely controlled by their isolation and their cruelty and their destructive appetites and their desire, and I feel like that is sort of the the subconscious shit that vampires are getting to. And not to get super fucking nerdy here, but we know that vampire myths have existed over long periods of times in many different cultures, and it does speak to something in the human psyche. And if you look at a vampire as all of those qualities embodied, and vanity, I guess, then I love all of, the, all of those petty details. I forget what we were talking about. <laughs> exactly. Because you're getting lost in... See, you're, you're, you can't get away from your lens, which is, I am reading this in relation to a century of vampire novels. I agree, but I guess it's your fault and not... The fact that you don't come in with what is, honestly, among fantasy readers, a very fucking basic level That's of understanding about of vampire exercise. mythology. But that is not Bruce failing. He's a fantasy writer. And if you read a lot of fantasy books, it's sometimes really fucking nice not to have the whole thing spoon-fed to you. And to actually come in here with, yeah, we all share these assumptions, and now let's see you play with them and see what you do. I thought from a fantasy reader's point of view, this book was so refreshing, crisp, and funny, and just not hitting you over the fucking head with it. I hate that shit in vampire books when somebody realizes that, wait a minute, he disappears during the day. Like, <laughs> oh my god, you know, and you're just like, I fucking get it. I actually am agreeing with you. I think fundamentally, we just can't come at it the same way because of that so in my reading and my inability to differentiate between this book and what I think the author is saying with it is is different <laughs> it's my own fault and this is this is sometimes maybe like a gendered thing when I when I read a man talking about a man who's supposedly something with women I can't help but like read that dude's feelings about 
women into the whole thing. So today, or why wouldn't you think that like what he's wearing says something about the character? What what does what does his corduroy coat say about him? Oh wait, no, okay. that he's vain and stylish and like petty and all of those little that he is in some way. The fact that he's however many years old, I think he's like three hundred years old, doesn't mean that he's not like driven by the like petty vanities of fashion. It's a good point. Okay. I, and I admit my wrong headedness in the, in this point. Maybe we can move to something else in that you said, I think he's like 300 years old. A point you'd made before this was that, that this book nicely gives a sense of his age, the, like the timelessness of his thoughts. I actually felt exactly different. And I think you might too. Well, I actually it. think you misunderstood my comment earlier. I was oh. just talking about the fact that it was written in the nineties. What in his diction, perception of the world, thoughts on the world, said anything other than a 20th century person? Because actually, I think he was not that old. I agree that he wasn't that old, and I actually like what you're getting to as a criticism, which is I think lots of times vampires are presented as either being stuck in the mindset that they were created in, you know, be that like 1870s or whatever, then they'll to some extent always be that type of like turn of the century gentleman. I think that the fact that he didn't seem extremely wise or to have a lot of insight from a previous age or that this accumulated time on earth has led up to something really got to the, yeah, the kind of humanist you mentioned, but also like the existential point of the book, which I thought he really was, which is like people are alone, dropped into a world full of pain and need and hungers and a dread of doom. And that actually the accumulation of experience doesn't really lead to understanding or knowledge. And you're always starting again. And that you're basically just whatever you're fucking feeling, that you're a slave to your emotions and that they don't mean anything, but you'll feel them anyway. And I thought this book did a great job with that. And the fact that he didn't seem very old, even though he was older than like a human, or that he didn't seem to have an affectation of a previous time, I thought was making a philosophical point. I mean, that's a nice thematic frame for a book we didn't read. Completely disagree. I thought that was this book. From the first page, almost, it's talking about meaning and isolation. This book was talking about love, overcoming love? even your Are you fucking kidding me? We even learned that his interest... I love when we learned that the whole reason he's fallen in love with Susan, because I did think that was a little bullshit. Like, you haven't loved anyone but your sire, and now you love this random girl. Why? And then he realized it's only because, I know this sounds ridiculous if you haven't read the book, but it's only because his sire, Kellum, is in love with the mayor's son. And his emotions are tied to hers, so the fact that she's in love means that he fell in love with someone. It wasn't wasn't actually love, it's still part of that just fucking vampire compulsion. I never got that How the fuck did you not get that? It was presented in such a funny way. Wait a minute, let me kill you. (laughs) You will die. I'm I'm not saying it didn't happen, I'm saying I don't remember. No, okay, don't say anything. He finds that out at the same time we do. Hmm, of course, if Kellum is in love, that might explain why I... Never mind, my own feelings require no explanation, nor do my actions. And it was such a great smirking way to say, like, he realizes this thing about himself, but then it doesn't really fit in with his feelings and his inclinations, so he can put aside facts just to follow his own will, which so much of this is him just being, like, driven in this very human self-centered at the whims of everything yeah i mean again that takes understanding that like vampire sires have any sort of sway over their people which Jesus i didn't understand I need, I need a new podcast partner <laughs> i'm just saying i didn't i can't do that this goes anymore. Head. I don't if you don't understand that then i don't know what to say i don't understand the relationship listen what goblin emperor did well and as you articulated in the podcast you have this conception of goblins like, whatever, I don't know, a goblin is like a three-foot-tall thing that steals your socks, is exactly what you said. But it is the book's job to establish for its readers what the reality of this creature is in the world of the book. It did that in Goblin Emperor, right? And it didn't do it here. It relied on... Okay, this gets back to our previous point, and I think actually this might be where we have to settle on this issue in this book, which is basically the issue of whether or not we like the book. I agree that that's something every fantasy book mostly does. I mentioned that last podcast. The special thing about this book, I thought, was that it didn't do that, and it was speaking exactly. exclusively so I don't to a fantasy it, audience. Exactly. That's my point. My whole point. I don't see that. That's why it's a it's a demerit on me as a reader, because I didn't come in with that knowledge. That, I agree, but I guess it just, it almost upsets me, because that means basically it's just, your ignorance coming in is why you, I feel like, didn't understand the book. 
I'm not contesting that. I know, but I just mean like it makes it hard to talk about the merits of the book when this thing that's going to make you make a lot of assumptions about it that I think are wrong or read it in a way that I think is actually a wrong reading of how it was written. I'm going to come up against that when in fact it's just that this was written for people who know the genre. And that's a plus side is what I'm saying. That's something cool about it. These are all of my points. Jesus, I know. I'm just mad you don't know about compulsion. Of course I don't understand about compulsion. I didn't realize till three-fourths of the way through the book that he turned Jill into something. I don't even know what he'd he like... He didn't turn Jill into something. He turned her into like a zombie that he could suck blood out of. No, she was under his sway. Oh my god. Okay, we need to leave that aside because I do want to ask you something that I think we can both talk about. What did you make of Jim? Yeah, the fucking ghost. Well, the freed slave ghost who <laughs> I think... Yeah, the ghost who's a... <laughs> the ghost who's a freed slave where oh. I feel like I yeah. Oh, loved him. So what did you think of Jim? Did you think the fact that he was an ex-slave and there's some creepy stuff about slavery in there? Did you think that that was only there to add an extra spooky element or did you think it was <laughs> spooky is a funny word. <laughs> or did you think it was saying I had like a racial point because I think there was some racial racial stuff in the book. Yeah, it was it was extra spooky. I thought the ghost was funny. It was silly. I got nothing out of the ghost. I thought, I didn't understand why it was Did you here. have any feeling about, I mean, he, the ghost, like, says the N-word a lot and stuff. I mean, that's in this book. The ghost does. It all, <laughs> it's just, you'll get mad at me. It seemed like a milder form of, like, early 1990s political correctness. Like, oh, I can say this. I would have thought something if anything was made out of it. Nothing, nothing at the end happened with Jim the ghost who was an ex-slave who had ambitions to be educated and I'm guessing was lynched. He was really wary of telling Agyar how he died but it seemed to be under, you know, some unfortunate circumstances. Mm -hmm. It seemed like a cheap insert. Okay. Um, That's what I was asking, I guess, if you thought it was cheap or not. I understand the reason because it aligns with some of the more, I mean, I guess we'd say like progressive elements that Agar wanted to embody in relation to, like, racial dynamics in America. I mean, he mentions that, like, I'll get away with shit because I'm white. Oh, yeah, all the time. Yeah. I mean, there's one part that, I mean, that did make me laugh. He said, eh, if things go bad here, I'll move to California. I can kill people in Oakland. No one cares. Mm-hmm. I mean, so that was scattered throughout. On the one hand, I like that aside. Um, on the other, again, you know, this isn't a Victorian English gentleman saying these things. So it's that same disconnect where I didn't feel any sort of agelessness here. But do you feel that, I'm sorry, but if you're, if you were frozen in time right now, do you think in a hundred years you would be making jokes about Obama or would you actually like, you would still be you. But that's funny because that's funny because there actually are a lot of 80 and 90 year olds alive in the world no, but and they're it's not different. the most. No, it's different because they've aged and this is a person who's ageless. So they haven't, so they have your mental acuity and, and physical abilities. I mean, I think there are a lot of like, I know there are fucking with it 80 year olds. <laughs> oh my saying. God. I'm just just saying, I okay, I'm drawing on whatever vampire knowledge I have again. I know that they're ageless. I've never thought that it's like a given that they they change their dispositions along with the time. It's not. That's something cool about this book. I agree. So I'm saying I did like that. All I'm saying is that because of that, it couldn't establish this guy's oldness, which is what I think a you know, maybe a vampire book might do. And which you said I think you're going back on a little bit now, but which you said it did do a couple minutes ago. All I was talking about was that reading a 25-year-old vampire book made it really interesting, the kind of timeliness of it, because it kind of works with vampire shit, because they're supposed to be in all these different times. But then I do agree with you that lots of times when I read vampire shit, the fact that they're like a thousand years old or something really gets me, and I love thinking of this Babylonian shepherd who's now <laughs> like talking to people and you know yeah. 2007 that gets me i'm sorry i just i feel really defensive of agyar and i guess it's because we had such different takes on it it's not takes i've from from minute one i've been saying i don't think i read this right or i don't have the ability to read this but so yeah the ghost i'm actually interested in hearing what you thought about it i didn't understand and this is like the again this is something that i think a credit to the book was written as not a beginner's entry-level fantasy book, right? Right. As good as Proust is, it's not going to be good for a middle schooler. I don't mm-hmm. know. You know, I just didn't have whatever I needed. Hear that, Stephen Proust? <laughs> Stephen 
Prue's oh, shit. shit. I did the puns. <laughs> it wasn't a vampire pun, so that works. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so I feel like what I was given, I had no way in which to read it other than as a kind of campus novel in which a guy... A campus novel? <laughs> a campus novel featuring a serial killer Lothario. Well, I like that. Yeah, I kind of read it that way too. Yeah, right? With all the vampire shit packed on. But yeah, I felt differently about Jim. I really wondered if he was cheap because I thought some of the the racial stuff was very abrupt, which even sounds so mealy-mouthed or weak to say, like, the racial stuff about that ex-slave who was lynched was... But yeah, because of that, I mean, I thought... Because it would really... He would say something really disturbing, and then the story would just move on. And even, to some extent, the main character didn't really care about Jim and was like, oh, Jim, being Jim, like, talking about some, like, daughter who died... But I actually liked him because because I haven't read a lot of things with ghosts in them and I'm not very interested in ghost shit in general. But I thought the way that it was hard to read him and kind of a lot of bizarre, ambiguous passages with him or it just seemed continually Agyar would be talking to him and then Jim would say something that Agyar in the audience didn't understand or Jim would get faraway looks or Jim would say something and then give one of his rare smiles it was just, he was fucking weird, and he did seem like, I thought, whoa, this is what ghost shit is about, that someone is, in a way, a specter of, like, a, a really violent, fucked up past, but also, like, fucking weird, and you can't comprehend it, then, okay, I kind of liked him. I didn't think he was just a, a cheap tack-on of, mm. like, racial violent trauma, which, at first, I was wondering about. So you did think that. I was curious. I mean, not so much as I was upset like from a you know narrative level that he mm-hmm. was there or that I thought it was a tack on and just that it seemed out of place kind of silly there have been I feel like there have been a lot of waves of vampire crazes and a lot of that I do think has to do with the eroticism and, right. and sexuality and Victorian shit but um see this is also where I got hung up because I know that the recent vampire stuff kind of revolves around their appeal their sexual appeal and so it was like, so I, that was another reason I went into this reading it as like, here's an appealing person. So I wasn't ready for it to be kind of turned on its head in that this is a compulsive serial I, killer. I mean, that's interesting because I do think the 2000s wave of vampires is so different than the 90s vampires who are like Anne Rice and I think there were two other authors writing similar shit to her. It was this interesting combination of gothic in the Victorian sense, which is like the the vampire embodies whatever's evil in Victorian society, excess and sexuality and desire and hunger and, you know. And it was combined with the gothic culture of the 90s, which I think was very different and more postmodern. Interesting to that extent and easy to make fun of, whatever. So that kind of shit happened in the 90s and I feel like the vampire did become sort of a Byronic, tragic hero. But that was different than the vampire shit before that, in which vampires were actually evil. So then I feel like what's going on now, and not that I don't read the shit now, but like it's, it's kind of weak compared to the others, is that now it's like the writers aren't even looking back to when vampires were evil. Now they're just looking back into the 90s in which they were like sexy Byrons. Mm-hmm. And now all it's taking away is the sexy, and it's not even really grappling with the fact that they're terrifying um so the 90s was still was messing with a little bit but still kept like an underlying sense of terror yeah exactly they're still like oh he has kind of like a sexy conversation with this girl and then he rips out her spleen and eats it and like spits on her and walks away so they eat spleen (laughs) (laughs) sorry i was just (laughs) masturbating (laughs) i thought they just sucked necks um no i mean they they delight in cruelty so anyway, cruelty and spleening beside, I think it might be time for a segment. Oh, I have a segment. What did you think of his poems? Oh, well, I loved, I kind of loved that they were bad. Inserts like that in books are hard for me. Did he mean them to be bad? He gave himself an excuse for them to be bad at least. I mean, they weren't unreadable. I actually love when authors throw in some poems. Fuck yeah, I read a poem. Go for it. Let's do Dun Dun Dun, Would You Live in This World? It's an interesting one for this, because this world is 1993 Ohio. <laughs> <laughs> we haven't even talked about the setting that much. You're from Ohio. Uh, well, no, from Utah. <laughs> I, I meant like oh, the wait, campus where, setting. Where do you think uh, Aguiar's from? I couldn't pick it up. The Janos Aguiar, I thought he was like Hungarian. Okay. But that was weird because like, and this is the whole, like the historical parts were a little off to me. I just didn't, I just couldn't 
it's maybe my own fault. I couldn't place him. It seemed like there's a couple references to battles, I think, like in the Boer War or like the French fighting the British in the Sudan, firmly like 1870s, 80s, 90s. And I know he spent a lot of time in London, but he gave us a glimpse of when he got turned by Kellum. He was walking with his friends after university. Mm. They were talking to some prostitutes. Which I love prostitutes. <laughs> a lot of prostitutes in this book. Yes. They're in <laughs> I mean, if they're not vulnerable enough, just, in, yeah. just in, real, in the real world. They're also just like what vampires do when they're bored. Yes, exactly. So, yeah. So, I mean, so the historical, he was talking to prostitutes. Kellum was there. It seemed very much like he's on the docks in, like, a Victorian London. I agree that the historical stuff was kind of vague and probably off. But again, and this is just from having read a shit ton of these, I liked that because usually you can totally tell that, like, the author went to Dublin to learn a little about a little <laughs> bit about what was happening in Dublin in 1872. Yeah, and then she's going to write this like thing in which she references like five different social movements. <laughs> and you're just like, I fucking get it. He's an old person. So would you live here? Would you live here? Am I aware that there's a vampire running around? There could be a vampire running around. <laughs> I know. That's why I shoot everyone. Just anyone. That's why you would immediately remove people's hearts. Exactly. Oh, also, also I, mean, I would just say no. I wouldn't live here because it's not a different world. Whoa. What do you mean you wouldn't live here because it's not... You wouldn't choose to or you mean like you wouldn't be good at living here because it's not... A, yeah, I think we think of this segment differently. I always <laughs> think of it because a lot of times when I read fantasy books, I'll be like, fuck everyone I know, kill you, my co-host, kill my parents, kill everyone who means anything because I want to live in this fucking world. So that's kind of what this segment is to you. If you want to know how I'll do in this world... Um, so that's how I'm taking it. Okay, since if I ran into this vampire and he like said two kind of jokes at me and was like oddly wearing a bobby coat, then like I'm probably going home with him <laughs> and I'm going to be fucking killed by a vampire. So I would do pretty bad in this world. We how about you? We haven't even talked about the ending in which he, he procures the help of a gypsy to cast a spell that will let him lose his, what, his compulsion, his, what's it called? His connection between him and his creator. Mm -hmm. Does that have a word? <laughs> it's connection. Compulsion sway. Like, yeah, sway. he wanted to... You knew Sire, so I thought there was another one <laughs> down there. Um, I don't know. I actually feel like I've defended vampires way too passionately in this. <laughs> we, we need to retake this podcast. <laughs> yeah, I think I would be one. I'd take him on. I would You would say... take him on? There's a way, just hang out in the sunlight. Well, okay, but I, I did like the, the real vulnerability of vampires in this. It was not hard to kill a vampire, really. I, I mean, I'm, I'm maybe underselling if you're overselling, because there are a couple of times when, like, he's walking on the houses. <laughs> that was kind of fun. Some of those political things were interesting. I mean, okay, I'm actually thinking about my Ohio thing. I don't know where this is set. Apparently, a small college town on Lake Erie, but it's also, like, massive and huge. And has like a red light district. I think this was a mid-sized town. He said that at some point when he was talking about why does Kellum even want to stay here before he figured out about her paramour. He said like it's not big enough to get lost in. It's not small enough to, I forget what he said there. But Kill everyone. Yeah, or like it's not small enough to own. I thought it was just a mid-sized Ohio town. And sorry you never found where the prostitutes were in your Ohio town, Scott. <laughs> They're under the bridge. That's true. That's where he's... Okay, yeah. So how would I do? I think I'd live in this town. <laughs> I don't know. That's a terrible Try and get answer. tenure at college. <laughs> it seems like they need a new sociology teacher. They do. Young Don. I love that he always refers to Don, this other paramour of Jill's that he kills as Young Don. It's just funny. The whole thing had so many moments that just made me laugh. And it's because I love things that seem Make like... Make you laugh. <laughs> no, but like are punchy and funny and mean like, I'm going to fucking kill you. That's <laughs> just, true. it's what works with me. I mean, it did have a couple times. And, I, you know, again, I'm underselling it. Some of those, the disconnect between him as a crazy killer and him as like a mildly concerned citizen <laughs> was nice sometimes. There's one that's kind of in line with your passage on the homeless person he meets on 179. He hasn't eaten in a while, I, I, I'm guessing, and is really hungry. And so he's kind of staked out a space in this parking garage waiting for like a random girl to walk by alone. He can't find anyone that's suitable, and he's getting more and more desperate. And he says, I see a young couple whose Toyota is parked directly in front of me. They get into their car. The man seems to see me, but he looks away. He probably thought I was drunk. 
Maybe he thought I was going to freeze to death and didn't didn't even care. What's become of human decency? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and this is him. He's mad because he couldn't kill them. I thought, you know, things like that worked. That's funny. That's exactly what I'm talking about. Right. But that's something I can get because by one 179, I understand he's a vampire. What's in it for the author not to say the word vampire? Now that I think of it, at the time I almost thought it was a gimmick when I was reading it because it seemed so obvious from the first page that he was a vampire and I just knew it. But now that I think of it, I almost feel like that's a way to say, this is for you fantasy readers. You know, you don't need this and I'm not going to fucking waste your time with exposition that all vampire books do. I mean, I just wish you'd read these, Scott, because you would appreciate that he doesn't say vampire and that he doesn't outline every fucking vampire thing again. The payoff understanding this book wouldn't have been worth the True Blood books, I don't think. There are a lot the of vampire price. books. Well, then maybe one thing, which will actually seamlessly lead into our cringeworthy, and this I feel kind of good about. We've, we spent a lot of time talking here about how I didn't understand anything, and you, Miss All-Knowing Bree, understood what was going on here. Love vampire books. <laughs> on the cover of the book is a picture. It's an interesting picture. It has a couple pink flowers. Behind it, you can see in the vase, if you look closely... I would call them white with pink shadows, but... White with pink shadows, okay. A a woman's face that's in the vase. It's kind of distant. That's very difficult to see, though. You have to look at it for a while to see that face. That's how I'm talking about it. I said, in the vase, kind of distant, is a woman's face that you have to kind of look at to make out. But very prominently in front of that is... A man with black hair, dressed in black, with a severe look on his face, who's obviously supposed to be Aguiar. He looks like Frankenstein, though. This is, as we learn towards the end of the book, a painting that Jill had done. I had that figured out earlier, and Bree didn't really know that that was supposed to represent Aguiar. Going back to my difficulty of seeing this guy as Lothario, listeners, you'll have to go in and maybe Google this book, because when you put... The Frankenstein face on the front of this to the description of this beturtled neck guy running around seducing all these women. It's kind of funny. All right, that's <laughs> funny. But my point is, first of all, with book covers, I kind of judge them. They're part of the book, but I would never think the people on the book cover are... Why not? No, I think they... I. So when you... No, were, no, wait, wait. Sorry. I think... When we read Goblin Emperor and you saw on there a guy with a crown who had big, long ears... Did you think, this goblin-looking creature probably has nothing to do with the protagonist of our book? No, I think it's representational and it's about marketing. I That was not how I pictured Maya looking through the book. Was it how you pictured him? I'm just saying, I get that that Frankenstein thing is supposed to be Agyar, but that's not how Agyar is described in the book. They're two like, different departments making no, this decision. Is. I really... All right, so this can get into the, the shame factor a little bit of the book and what we think about the cover. I loved the cover because I think the cover is very kitschy and winking at the reader that this is like a vampire story get it and it has those kind of very romantic roses and it's creepy and it's dark and that frankenstein creature who i thought was just pasted on there to be like and fantasy so i like that it was kitschy because and i especially think by the end of the book the book has kind of a winsome relationship to camp in general and definitely the way it's ended in the past few pages it becomes really smirking but when I realized that this is a painting that Jill does, I didn't really like that section, except I did like, I accepted it only because I liked his thing when he said he actually felt guilt and shame when he realized what he'd done to her and that this was her self-portrait and it was so horrible for him to see. But then he appreciated that he felt guilt and shame because he think it's because he thinks it's indecent for a human being to live their life and never feel guilt and shame, <laughs> which is actually so, like self-serving and immoral and hilarious in terms of its its treatment of morality. So you wouldn't mind reading this on a bus? Fuck no. I give this a 0.5. Cringe factor? 0.5 cringe factor. It's a cool cover. I like it. I would, I would hang that poster in my house. <laughs> I mean, not of the book. I don't love this book in the way that I'm about to put a poster of it up. But <laughs> the images on the cover, I think, are kind of wonderful. That's, it seems to contradict exactly what you said about putting a poster up. <laughs> I, know. I would put this poster up. I'm not going to put a poster of this up, but... <laughs> you know what I mean. Yeah. No, I mean, I think it's one of those... What do you think? Well, it's a double take. On first look, I think I could never take this outside the house. And then I look at it again and think, oh, it's not that bad. It's not like a robot. It's just flowers and a guy, right? It's funny, right? I don't understand the funny. What? It's, it's, a, it's flowers 
It's a campy. Vase. I mean, camp is funny. And it's very, like, high gothic images, like, oh, a red background and a woman with a single tear out of her eye, and then all of these very stylized roses that are white with pink shadows, and then this Frankenstein face. I mean, I think it's really silly in a way that is knowing. Well, the knowing is important there because, I guess, with all camp, the degree of inness on the jokeness depends mm-hmm. for the audience. That's true. Okay, so then I guess cr- cringe factor, it's, it's, a, it's right down the line, 2.5. Okay, that's good. For I me. agree on this. Yeah. Well, then let's give our ratings and wrap this up. Oh, fuck. I feel like there's going to be... This is tough. The this biggest been, disparity we've had. This has been a contentious... A contentious podcast. I know. I feel heated. I feel kind of bad. Towards me or Stephen Bruce Brunson? Towards the vampires. Vampires. Yes. Well, you should feel bad. So what do you give this, Brie? How many dead prostitutes do you give this? <laughs> <laughs> well, I just want to say, and I want to mention it every week, that I hate the rating system. Yep. And that I feel really fucked up about having to give ratings. And I know that all my ratings are the same. So I give this a solid eight. To be honest, there's not much I would change about this book. It was quick and fast. But it can't get above an eight for me because it was, I feel like, very slim mm. in what it was setting out to do. So I thought this did what it wanted to do. I had a good time reading it. Did this seem pulpy? Yeah, by the end. Hmm. By the end. So I liked it. I thought it was smart and funny and spooky, to use your favorite word. Mm-hmm. Spook- I love the word funny. Okay. Well, this is hard because there's me reading it and there's me like the annotated version of me reading it, which is Brie. And if I factor in, and this isn't just like what it should be if I understood what I needed to understand, but if I factor in the knowledge you've dropped into my reading, some things I thought were, in my head I could tell was doing something, even though I didn't know what. I still appreciated some of that kind of strange, odd presentness for a vampire novel and it's like concerns about (laughs) social issues that came out of nowhere. Um, It was wry in that way. It was kind of light on its feet sometimes for being so ponderous, which I enjoyed. Sometimes the prose hit a nice rhythm, which matched his own kind of interesting introspection. If I take, if I factor in your knowledge, I'll give it a seven. If I have no Brie over my shoulder, it's a three. Shit. So I think averaging okay. them out, it's a straight five. Okay, but... It's just gotta, there's no, it's gotta be right down in, the middle. In a way, I like that because we can agree that this is a book written for fans of the genre. That's why five seems neutral enough to okay. compensate. Okay, I think that works. Well, hopefully next time will be something where I don't need such Well, at backstory. least next time we will have someone to mediate our hatred. This is true. Our first guest, stick around next time. For Stephen Markley. Stephen Markley, writer, sci-fi fan, dog hater. Tinder user. Heavy drinker. <laughs> Fairweather friend. Jack of some trades. Jackass. <laughs> Eligible bachelor. Ineligible bachelor. <laughs> Join us as he will be on the show to talk about Blind Sight with us. By Peter Watts. By Peter Watts. It's going to be a great time. Aliens. It'll be aliens. We'll play that music the whole time. Bleep blurp. Bleep blurp. Bleep blurp. I hate you. I hate you. Where did it go wrong?